Hey, take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 6. I'm sure you figured it out by now. We're in a series of Mark, and we're going one sermon in each chapter of Mark. Have you ever mistaken a person for someone else? That can be embarrassing. Listen, I was in the Atlanta airport, and someone said to me, you're Vince McMahon. <laughs> and so I flexed my biceps and my pecs, and nah. I, I said, no, I'm not Vince McMahon. I'm Chuck Herring. A case of mistaken identity. You know, when you do that, you risk offending the person that you mistake their identity. L listen, can I say this? If you're mistaken about the identity of Jesus Christ, you're in, you're, you're in big-time trouble. Big-time trouble. It's tragic. So, in, in Mark chapter 6, here's the situation. Jesus has gained a lot of notoriety. He's got quite a reputation. His popularity was soaring. All kinds of rumors were swirling around concerning his identity. Was he just a prophet? Was he the Jewish Messiah? Was he a pretender? Was he the Son of God? Who was this Jesus? That, that question hangs over this chapter in, a, in an unreal kind of way. Now, when he went to his hometown of Nazareth in the first part of chapter 6 here, he walked in and he, he wanted to preach and teach about the kingdom. He wanted to, to heal people and, and do miracles and extend the kingdom of God. But do you know what? There was a, a case of mistaken identity by the people of Nazareth because they viewed him as the little boy who had grown up in Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary. And the Bible says that he couldn't do many miracles there. A case of mistaken identity. Jesus sent out the twelve to go into the villages around Galilee and to preach the kingdom of God and to preach repentance. And when they came back, they reported to the Lord Jesus. And I tell you, it was a celebration, but hanging over those moments was the grief that Jesus experienced over the beheading of John the Baptist. The clock was ticking. Jesus would be crucified within a year. Understand, this is within a year of the crucifixion of Jesus. It was time for him to take his ministry to the next level, and that included making sure that people could understand his true identity, including his own disciples. With that being said, I, I want to point you to a miracle that is found in all four Gospels. This is the only miracle that Jesus ever did that's in all four Gospels. So that would indicate to us that this must be uh, a, a very important miracle. There must be some important lessons that we need to learn from this miracle. Now, I want you to notice verse 30 to 33. 
the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. That must have been some kind of report. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves, and the people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Now, you've got to understand that the Sea of Galilee is not like the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean or the Gulf of Mexico. The Sea of Galilee is basically a, a, a large freshwater lake. So it wouldn't have been any problem for people on land to see Jesus and his disciples get in the boat and go to the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee for a time of refreshment and relaxing together. And so when they saw them headed that, headed that direction, they began to go on land and they followed the boat. Now, it was a Passover season, so there were many Jews getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And, and this crowd just grew and grew and grew as word spread among those who were headed to where Jesus and the disciples were going. And more people joined and more people joined until when Jesus and his disciples landed the boat, that there may have been upwards of 20,000 people there waiting on the Lord Jesus. We know there were 5,000 men. That's not counting women and children. So it's an interesting situation. Why were the people so fascinated with Jesus? Why did so many people walk or run maybe a, a half marathon to get to the Lord Jesus for this special moment? Well, John tells us something that's very important. Now, I told you that this miracle is in all four Gospels. Well, here's what John says in John chapter 6, verse 2. He said, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on those who were sick. They didn't follow him because they believed him to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They followed him because of the miracles they saw him do. They were interested in what Jesus could do for them. They were not interested in learning who he was and submitting their lives to him in saving faith. But how would Jesus respond to this invasion of his privacy? I mean, he went there for a reason. These disciples needed to rest, and Jesus knew it. And so they land the boat. There's, there may have been 20,000 people waiting on them. Jesus could have sent them away. Jesus could have ignored them, got back in the boat, and went to another destination. But the Bible says this. The Bible says this in verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd... And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
and he began to teach them many things. Jesus was deeply moved by genuine concern and compassion for these people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if you know anything about the Middle East, you know anything about sheep, sheep without a shepherd are in dire straits. There's danger of predators. There's danger of them getting lost, of them getting hurt, of them getting separated from the flock. So Jesus was concerned for them like a shepherd would his own sheep. Who is Jesus? That's the question that hangs over this entire story. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. As the good shepherd, he began to teach them about the kingdom of God, passionate son of God at his very best. Look at verse 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now you've got to remember, this is a remote area and it was getting late, and the disciples suggested to Jesus that it was time to, to bring the ministry to a close and to send the people into the various villages and back to their homes to find something to eat. Now remember, there were no Burger Kings. There were no McDonald's. There were no Cracker Barrels. There were no Silver Cabooses. They, they would have to go and, and find someone who, who they could purchase some food from in a home, and it would take them a while to get it ready. If they went to their own homes, it would take them uh, many hours to prepare the food that they would need to eat before they would lay down and go to sleep. I'm not sure the, the disciples were ready for the bomb that the Lord Jesus was about to drop in their, their lap. They said, Lord, it's late. It's time to wrap up the preaching. It's time to wrap up the healing. It's time to send the people home so they can get something to eat. Well, look at verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Jesus loves to put his disciples in positions of impossibility so that they will learn to trust him and have faith in him to do the impossible through them. And that's exactly what Jesus did right here. You give them something to eat. Now, can you imagine the disciples? I, I can just see, see Peter, James, and John, and Philip, and those guys, and, and they look at each other with a quizzical look on their face, and, and they begin, Lord, there, there's 20,000 people here. And Jesus said, well, what do you have? What do you have? You know what they found? They found a, a little boy who had five flat barley loaves, pieces of bar like a piece of pita bread, five of those, and two little pickled or dried fish. And they began to, 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 to calculate 
what it would cost to go somewhere and remember there were no Kroger's either, right? There wasn't. They said, look, it it would take 200 denarii to buy enough bread to give them something to eat. How could Jesus expect these men to feed that many people? Undoubtedly, the disciples reached the conclusion it's impossible. Or was it? Jesus knew what he was about to do. He also knew how important it was to build the faith of these men as they moved to the time of the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. Jesus was going to entrust these men with the glorious gospel of Christ. Jesus was going to entrust these men to be the leaders of the newfound church that Jesus promised to build and promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. It was imperative that they understand who he was and what he was capable of doing. So in verse 38 we read, And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them, that's all the 20,000 people, He commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. That green grass little little, uh, tidbit tells us it's about the Passover season. During the Passover season, the grass on the hillsides there in Galilee turns green. So Jesus commands all these people to sit down in groups of hundreds and groups of 50. It was like, if you were to look at it, it was like a, the rows of a vegetable garden. That, that's what Jesus was looking for. You know, in a vegetable garden, you've got a row of cabbage. You've you got a row of tomatoes. You've got a row of green beans. You've got, got to have a row of purple hull peas. You've got to have purple hull peas there. And, and th- basically, that's what Jesus wanted out of this large group of people. He wanted them in groups of 50 and groups of 100 arranged like the rows of a vegetable garden. You say, well, why was Jesus doing this? He was getting ready to feed them. That's exactly what he was doing. The disciples didn't understand that, of course. So they had five pieces of flat barley bread, two small pickled or dried fishes, fish, and it was a, a little boy's lunch. They were focused on what they lacked. Jesus was focused on what they had. Jesus saw possibilities where the disciples only saw impossibilities. Now what Jesus did next must have added to their shock. He said, look, get the people in a position where they can relax and enjoy a meal. Mark 6, 41, the Bible says, And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. Now get the picture here. In the hands of Jesus, five little barley loaves, And two little dried or pickled fish. 
is enough to feed 20,000 people. And he began to break it. And the more he broke it, the more it multiplied. And those disciples, can you picture them? They come to the Lord Jesus with their little baskets, and, and Jesus fills up their baskets with bread and fish, and, and they go and, and they serve this row, and they go and they serve this row. They come back with empty baskets, and, and, and to their surprise, there's more bread and there's more fish, and Jesus fills them up again. Until, and this happens until every person on that hillside had had a meal. I might add, a satisfying meal. Look at verse 42. They all ate. Now, what does the word all mean? It means every single one of them. Every little boy and girl got some fish and bread. Every mom and dad got fish and bread. Every grandmother and grandfather got fish and bread. And the Bible says in verse 42, and they all ate, and get this now, and were satisfied. They were satisfied. The word satisfied speaks of being gratified to the point where they didn't want anything else to eat. It's like a Thanksgiving meal. You, you, you know Thanksgiving meal, you sit down and there's all this delicious food and you sit down and you eat and you eat and you eat and you get up and you say this, I couldn't eat one more bite. That's exactly what they experience. That's what the word satisfied pictures for us here. Jesus used the same word in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Satisfied. There's a hymn entitled, Satisfied with Jesus. It says, I'm satisfied with Jesus. He's done so much for me. He has suffered to redeem me. He has died to set me free. I am satisfied. I am satisfied. I am satisfied with Jesus. He is with me in my trials. Best of friends of all is he. I can always count on Jesus can he always count on me? Oh, t let me tell you something, dear friend. Jesus is the only one in all of creation who can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. The only one. He can forgive your sins. He can give you hope. He can give you eternal life. He can add purpose to your life. He can apply God's promises to your life. He can help you to live in victory. He can heal your broken heart. He can guide you through a maze of confusion. Do you know who he is? Do you know who he is? Do you know that he, he is capable of doing anything that needs to be done to help you have the kind of life that can only be categorized as satisfying? Satisfying. Are you satisfied with Jesus? Are you? Today, today, are you satisfied with Jesus? Hey, the rest of this song goes like this. When my work on earth is ended and I cross the mystic sea, 
Oh, that I could hear him saying, I am satisfied with thee. Maybe the question we need to ask today is not only are you satisfied with Jesus, but is Jesus satisfied with you? Is he? Let's get back into the story here in verse 30, 43 and 44. The Bible says, And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Again, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Now, Mark probably saw the 12 basketfuls of fragments uh, as Christ's superabundant provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. Such abundance suggests the dawn of the Messianic age. But practically speaking, those 12 baskets of food would be the disciples' lunch that day, their dinner that day. Jesus provided for his own. He provided for the 20,000, upwards of 20,000 people who were gathered there that day. John tells us how the people responded to Jesus doing all of this for them. In John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. Now you got to remember, after Jesus had, had done this miracle, after he had sent the people back to their homes after he had fed them. Jesus and the disciples got in a boat, and we're going to get into that in just a moment, and they went back to Capernaum, and it was in Capernaum that Jesus had another encounter with the same crowd of people. And, and John says this in verse 14 and 15 of John chapter 6. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now here's the tragedy of mistaken identity. The people wanted a crush the Romans, give me the kingdom now kind of Messiah. Their desire for, was for a Messiah who would meet their physical needs to make sure they had plenty of food at all times to make sure that they were well taken care of in the physical realm. They totally under, misunderstood the Lord Jesus Christ, who he was and what his mission was. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 66 the Bible says this. I want to read it to you. Same crowd of people. Listen to this. John chapter 6, verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus knew how to thin a crowd out, didn't he? A crowd of, 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 of people who were half in and half out, right? And they withdrew from him, and they didn't follow him anymore. It's the tragedy of mistaken identity. Listen, I would encourage you to really look deep in your heart and really ask yourself this question. Do I know who Jesus is? Do I really know who Jesus is? Do I know what he's capable of doing have I given my heart and soul and life to Jesus? 
Listen, one truth just sort of leaps out of this entire chapter, and here's that truth. You can't ignore Jesus. You can't. No matter who you are, no matter how hard you try, at some point in your life, you are go- your life is going to intersect with the life of Jesus. You can be an avowed atheist. You can say there's no such thing as a God. You can be an agnostic and say, well, I don't know if there's a God or not. Or, or you can be someone who, who has followed a, another religion, a, a false religion, a, a, a false teaching, and you can say, I'm not so sure about you. I can tell you, dear friend, one day, one day, your life will intersect with the Jesus of this Bible. You can't ignore Jesus. To take five loaves and two fish and feed upwards of 20,000 people reveals that he is anything but ordinary. He did things that nobody else could do. He healed lepers. He gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead. He made the lame to walk. He ordered a storm to stop, and it stopped. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. Nobody else in all of human history has been able to do the kind of stuff that Jesus did. Nobody. But he also said things that nobody else would dare to say. He said he was God. In John chapter 14, verse 1, you believe in God, believe also in me making himself equal with God. He said, I and the Father am one. Philip, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus declared to the entire world of his day, I am God. Nobody else was saying that. And and he said he was the only way to go to heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. What an audacious claim. Jesus of Nazareth said, I'm the only one who can get you to heaven when you die. He said he was without sin. He said he never committed a sin. Have you ever heard of anybody in your life making such a claim? He said that he could give a person eternal life. He said that if a person dies, yet he shall live. He said that he would die for our sins. He said that he would be raised from the dead. He said that he would come again. Now, when somebody says the things that Jesus said and does the things that Jesus did, you can't ignore them. You can't ignore them. And God forbid that you mistake the identity of Jesus by passing him off as another prophet or as one of many gods or as a fraud, this would be absolutely tragic for you. The question that had been hanging over the human race since the day the angels appeared to Mary and Joseph telling them about the birth of Jesus, the question hanging over the human race is who is Jesus? That's always been the question, and it will always be the question. Now, the miracle we've studied today reveals three truths about Jesus. Number one, the identity of Jesus. 
Later, Jesus would take his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Some of you went with me to Israel, and we stood right there at Caesarea Philippi where there is a a host of of carved-out niches in a a stone uh, mountain hill-like thing where they place false gods, idols. You know what Jesus said to his disciples in that context with all these places for idols around? You know what he said? Who do the people say that I am? The disciples said, some say John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. But others say you're one of the prophets. But then he asked him this question. But who do you say that I am? Peter, James, John, Matthew, Philip. Nathaniel, who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering for the group, said this, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. The true Jewish Messiah. The Son of the living God. Can I ask you, do you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus is the one and only Savior of the world? Do you believe that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that one day every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Do you believe that? I believe it with all my heart. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Will you receive him? Will you commit your life to him? Jesus said this, truly, truly, I say to you, John 6, 47, he who believes has eternal life. Have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? This miracle reveals the identity of Jesus. But it also reveals, number two, the capacity of Jesus. This miracle reveals to us that Jesus can do anything. Can can I tell you this? If Jesus can take three little flat, uh, excuse me, five little flat pieces of barley bread and and two little fish and feed upwards of 20,000 people, he can do anything. He can do anything. So look, if you really believe that nothing is impossible with Jesus, then when he drops a challenge in your life as a believer, and he will, I'm talking to believers now, he will put you in a position that seems impossible to you, then you need to never doubt his ability to do through you what only he can do. I, I never will forget when God called me to, to preach. I was a coach. I thought I'd be a coach the rest of my life. I didn't like to get in front of a great crowds of people and talk. And, and he called me to preach. And, and it, it was a moment where, where God was not interested in me 
trying harder. He was interested in me simply believing him, trusting him. That's the issue for our lives as a believer. He wants you to know that your success depends on him. And I can tell you this. Any success that comes from this pulpit comes from Jesus, not from me. I promise you that. Never shy away from attempting great things for God and expecting great things from God. So this miracle reveals the identity of Jesus and the capacity of Jesus, but it also reveals the reliability of Jesus. Now there's a story tacked onto this miracle that's very important. Very important. In fact, look, look at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. Why? Because the crowd wanted to make him a king. They wanted a militaristic king. They did not want a, a, a savior. They wanted a king who would crush the Roman government and set them free from Roman oppression. And he didn't need his disciples to get caught up in that stuff. So he put them in a boat, told them to go to Bethsaida. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, this would be about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, 3 to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. And he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. In Matthew's gospel, in his account of this, this is, a, this is the point where Peter said to Jesus at this moment, if you're really Jesus, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come on. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. He was walking by faith. He literally walked on the water. But, but then the wind and the waves caught his attention. And he was filled with fear. And when his faith dissipated, he began to sink. What did he do? Jesus saved me. And Jesus reached his hand down and took Peter and brought him back up and carried him to the boat. You see, friend, look. Jesus expects us as believers to walk by faith. And when we're not walking by faith... We're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. So the challenge for those men in the boat was not, will you try harder? 
Will you, will you take the oars and will you strain even more to get the boat to the shore? No. The, the, the challenge for them was this. Will you trust Jesus? Will you? Hey, that's the challenge for every believer when they're battling through a crisis in their marriage. Or when they're battling through a crisis in their career. Or they're battling through a crisis in their health. I want you to know that Jesus is reliable. You can count on Jesus at every moment and at every stage of your life as a believer. You can trust it. But I can tell you what you can't do. You can't ignore Jesus. You can't. Now, with what we've looked at today, you have two choices. You can accept him or reject him. Now, you say, well, Pastor, I'm going to suspend judgment for a while. Well, that sounds like a great idea. Just make sure you don't suspend judgment for too long. Okay, dear friend, whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell depends on what you do with Jesus. You can't ignore him. Whether you're a teenager, whether you're a, 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 a young adult, a, a middle-aged adult, a senior adult, you cannot ignore Jesus. We've looked at his identity. We've looked at his capacity. We've looked at his reliability. Why would you not want to give your heart to Jesus? Now I'm going to ask our, our worship team to come and, and to get ready. And what, what I'd like for you to do right now, I, I want you to really look in your heart. Are you ready to receive Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? I'm going to ask our staff to come. We're going to be, have staff members down here to minister to you. And if you would like to talk with a staff member about your faith in Jesus, about a relationship with Jesus and what that means, you come to one of our staff members. We'd be glad to minister to you at this moment. But if you're a believer in this room, and maybe you're struggling with the capacity of Jesus, and you're in what seemed like an impossible situation. And the issue for you is your faith. Maybe you want to come to the altar and bow the knee to Jesus. Say, Jesus, grow my faith like you grew those disciples' faith. Help me to believe you for the impossible. Or maybe you're here today and you're going through a, a, a real challenge in your life, your health, your career, a marriage, whatever. And the question before you is this. Will you count on Jesus? Will you depend on him to give you victory in those moments? Maybe you want to come to the altar and bow the knee and pray to Jesus. You come. Let me pray, Father, in the name of Jesus. I thank you for this incredible miracle. I thank you, Lord, for your kingdom focus. And I thank you, Lord, that you've made it very clear
that nobody can ignore you. And I pray that this morning somebody will come to faith in Jesus. That some believer will understand your capacity to do anything and that some believer will turn to you and depend on you knowing that you are absolutely 100% reliable. Lord, have your way in our hearts. We love you, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and you come as God leads you.